With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, and welcome back to Amazing Avenue in Conversation. My name is Brian Salvatore, and on today's episode, I am joined by Tim Kirkjian. Tim Kirkjian has been a member of the ESPN baseball family for quite some time. He is a regular contributor to Baseball Tonight and SportsCenter. He writes for ESPN the magazine and ESPN.com, and he is currently doing something called Baseball Fix, which is a daily series of writings about baseball as we are dealing with this baseball-less time. It's a really fun way to spend a few minutes every morning thinking about baseball that relates to the particular day of the uh, calendar that you are currently reading it. So some of his recent topics include Brooks Robinson, uh, why players wear certain numbers, Jim Palmer, and most notably the Mets fans, the day Bartolo Colon went deep. So I spoke with Tim about all of this, as well as some general baseball thoughts, and here you go. Enjoy. You grew up in the uh, Mar- in Maryland, and you were likely watching a lot of uh, Baltimore Orioles games growing up. Who was your player? Like I, For me, growing up a Mets fan, depending on what area you're talking about, like believe it or not, Bobby Bonilla was one of my favorite players for the brief time he was a Met. And then as I got older, Mike Piazza was sort of my guy. So who was your guy growing up? Well, I grew up in suburban Washington, D.C. The Senators were my team, not the Orioles. Oh, okay. The Orioles, the Orioles just killed the Senators. But I <laughs> loved the Senators because they were our team. Frank Howard, 6'7", 300 pounds, one of the strongest men ever to play the game. Eddie Brinkman there, dinky little shortstop who could really catch and throw, loved him. I uh, love Willie Mays from 3,000 miles away. He was like the first guy I was just completely awed by. And I did, of course, keep my eye on the Orioles because they were in my home state. And, of course, Brent, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, Jim Palmer, those guys were amazing to me. And I really, truly, truly started to understand baseball in the 1966 World Series when the Orioles swept the Dodgers. I knew baseball before then, but that's when I really started to understand what this was all about on national level. What was it about that World Series that made you really have everything come together? Well, again, I grew up in such a baseball house. I mean, this is the only language that we spoke in my house growing up. My dad was a really good player and had a great feel for the game. My two brothers, Annie and Matt, are in the Catholic University Baseball Hall of Fame. So uh, this is the only thing we were interested in in my house. But I was nine years old in 1966, and I just was dazzled by – watching World Series games, and I would run home from school when they used to be played in the afternoon, <laughs> and I got to see, you know, Sandy Koufax, and 
Brooks Robinson and Frank Robinson and all these other sensational players. Um, and that's what really turned me on is, is seeing a World Series game played in some cases from 3,000 miles away in the middle of the afternoon on my black and white TV. That was, that was pretty cool. Now, as somebody who's written about baseball for a very long time now, what is the part of the game that you, how can I say this? You know, when trying to be objective about the game and about the players you're covering, you obviously have to be dispassionate in a certain way. But what's the part of the game that still brings you a lot of passion? Well, I love to watch the games. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I think we've gotten away from watching the players play, and we are evaluating them and judging them based on a bunch of statistics which I value greatly, by the way. I'm the son of a PhD in mathematics. But I think we've gotten away from saying, well, I saw that guy play. He's a Hall of Famer. And I don't need any specific numbers. I know what I was watching. So that still gives me all the passion in the world is to watch a great player play. I mean, watching Mike Trout just move in the outfield and run that fast at 235 pounds and take that ball down in the strike zone and rifle it over the left center field fence. I mean, that's the stuff that still gets me. And yet on the flip side, uh, you know, waking up in the morning and reading the box scores every day, I've been doing that for (laughs) 60 years. Uh, That's really great pleasure of mine. And that's one of the many, many things I miss terribly with no games being played. Well, you know, I think you speak for all of us when just talking about all the things we're missing without live baseball. And one of the things you've been doing is you've been having your baseball fix every day on ESPN.com where you're writing about something that happened on this day in baseball history. And since we are a Mets site, I would be remiss if I didn't talk to you about Bartolo Colon's home run, which you just covered the anniversary of recently. From a Mets fan perspective, that was such an amazingly fun Event and then one that someone's talked about all the time. Our site actually made up shirts that said Bartolo at the bat, you know, uh, uh, commemorating that moment. As as a journalist from the outside, what makes that moment so special for not just Mets fans but for everybody? Well, he's forty two years old when he hit a home run. No one has ever <laughs> been that old to hit his first major league home run. He also doesn't really look like a home run hitter or even a baseball player. And yet that's one of the things I wrote about is he's a way better athlete than people think he is. He's a pretty darn good fielding pitcher with great feet. He can do the splits. He's remarkably strong and he just doesn't run very fast. So Kevin Ploiecki, who I quoted in this story, told me, look, he hits home runs at BP all the time. This wasn't a surprise that he had the power to get the ball out. We were just waiting for the time. But this is why baseball is so great, is it is filled with these fun moments where a pitcher who's never hit a homer and he's 42 years old goes deep and Gary Cohn and Ron Darling react the way that they do. I mean, I just hope he comes back and hits a triple because that might even be better (laughs) than him hitting a home run. I don't know where he would have to hit it in what ballpark to get a triple, but I would love to see him try. 
Yeah, as you remember, when when he hit the home run and he had a very slow run around the bases, Ron Darling was just hilarious, as we know, said, that might be the slowest home run trot I've ever seen, but I think that's as fast as he can run. So uh, that's what also made it is that everyone had such a good time with it. We really don't have enough fun with baseball these days, and I think we should have more of it. I agree with that. And you brought up something I think is is important for Mets fans to realize, which is that we are truly blessed with one of the best broadcasters in baseball. Uh, Gary Cohen, Keith Hernandez, and Ron Darling do an incredible job calling the games every week. And I think that Cohen's call is just so full of joy and passion when you hear that, that it sounds like he's watching his own child hit a home run. It's just this, this joyous event. Uh, what do you think about Gary, Keith, and Ron as a broadcast trio? Uh, well, they're great. They're as good as there is. I mean, Ron breaks down pitching as well as anybody. I covered him, by the way, with the 82 Rangers. I was there the day they <laughs> traded him to the Mets with Walt Terrell for, for Lee Mazziliak, the farm director, to get his his response to that trade. And I was told by one of his aides, uh, he's dead. He jumped off the roof of the Holiday Inn after hearing about that trade. So uh, you know, Ron is great. And Keith and Gary, of course, did radio games with Gary where I was the, the uh, radio color guy. That was a thrill because he's such such a pro. But the, and Keith, of course, is Keith. My God, he's the greatest defensive first baseman of all time. His recognition of the game, his understanding, his sense of humor is so, so good. And as a group, they are so great together. And, you know, Gary's call, he wasn't even being a homer. If, if you remember what he said, he said that this is one of the greatest day or feats in the this wasn't a Mets thing. This was a baseball thing that a pitcher who's pitched for this many teams is this old, looks like this, hits a homer. He recognized this isn't about the Mets. This is about the, more about the game. Yeah. Uh, I had the pleasure of talking to Gary earlier this year down at spring training, and the guy's mind is just so sharp for baseball. I think people don't recognize how much hard work he puts in, but also how fast he is on his toes in the broadcast booth. He's just... He's just one of the best. Well, let's talk for a minute about the Mets as an organization right now. You know, we're obviously sitting here waiting, hopefully, for baseball to return. But what were your thoughts about the Mets going into the 2020 season? Did you think that their strong finish in 2019 was going to lead to good things for the team this season? Uh, I wasn't, I'm still not quite sure what to make of the Mets. If of course, and this was before I, I think I picked them to make the playoffs before the season began. I'm not even sure anymore. Things have changed so much, <laughs> but I just felt if they could keep that starting pitching healthy and then two weeks later, Noah Syndergaard had Tommy John, I thought they could make the playoffs in the National League because I didn't see I didn't see any great teams in the National League beyond the Dodgers. I think the Braves are good, the Nationals are good, the Phillies are better, but I think the Mets are better too. And with the return of health of some guys and another, you know, uh, and Cespedes potentially coming back and what should be great starting pitching, uh, I thought they had a chance to make the playoffs. And maybe they still will if we play. Who knows about that? But 
I found the National League to be very jumbled this year with a lot of pretty good teams and very few really good teams. Yeah, I think that's the way a lot of people feel right now. Just there's the Dodgers and there's everybody else. But unfortunately for the Mets, almost all of the everybody else's that are interesting are in the East also. So it'll be it'll be tough to win the division or even to make the playoffs. But you know who knows? And that's actually a great transition into you know we're talking about baseball as if it's something that's going to happen, but we really don't know. What do you feel is the most likely? outcome for baseball in 2020 as of you know recording this at 12 39 p.m on may 15th so what do you think you know as of right now is the most likely outcome well this could change by 1 39 p.m because that's how the narrative goes here answer your question and i want you to note my hesitation here sure i i think we're gonna play baseball this year and I think we're going to play in July. I think we're going to play without fans. I think it's going to be the strangest season ever. And yet, if they don't play at all, I will not be surprised at all. I think that's where we are now. And this is my confusion. Every person I talk to has a different look at this. And my big concern is there are so many roadblocks in the way. And once dodge one of them, there's always going to be something else. And if something really bad happens, if the virus spreads a little more and becomes even more dangerous, that might be it. So I'm going to take the high road and say, there's going to be baseball, a truncated season, a very odd season. But am I sure of that? I haven't been sure of anything since about the middle of March. Now, if there is a truncated season, I mean, we, we've seen shortened seasons before, but never a season shortened like this for these reasons. Do you think that whoever wins the World Series, if there is a World Series, will there always be an asterisk next to everything with this season, but especially the World Series winner? Uh, now, I'm sure there will be. I covered the 81 season. I covered the 81 strike. They played 110 games or so that year, and it was a very strange season, but there's no asterisk. Next to that one, the Dodgers won the World Series, and they deserve to win the World Series. Um, this is going to be different, and I have to know how many games we're going to play before I'm going to be absolutely certain whether this is going to be a championship-caliber season. If we play 80 games, I think we have to say, look, this is nobody's fault, but whoever wins is going to deserve it. And, yes, there'll be... I'm sure an imaginary asterisk next to this for the rest of time because no one will ever forget how strange this was. It it's just it's it's almost mind-boggling to think about a season played without fans. I know there was a game a couple of years ago in Baltimore that was without fans, and watching that game on television was a terribly surreal experience. And I I, I know that. Like the KBO has been piping in some crowd noises and things like that. Is there anything you think that could happen from a broadcast standpoint that would make the fans at home feel a little bit more at ease with this type of a season? Well, first off, I was at the 2015 Oreo game, and that was obviously the strangest game I've ever covered. It was Chris Davis hit a home run in the first inning and just 
ran around the bases in total silence. It was so eerie. Buck Showalter told me, he said, we didn't even need the bullpen phone. I just stood on the top step of the dugout. And, you better get Britain up. That's how quiet it was that day. And I've done a couple of the KBO games now for ESPN, and it is a weird dynamic. Um, but I think we all had all better get used to the fact that if there is Major League Baseball this year, that's the way it's going to be played. And 2015 game was interesting because it was unique. But it's not going to be unique after a couple of games and people are going to get – I don't think it's going to be easy to get used to no fans in the stands because say what you like, but fans have a lot to do with this and it's just not going to be the same feeling if they're not allowed in. How hard is it going to be to cover this game without being at the ballpark every day, without being able to go into the clubhouse and get quotes? Is it going to fundamentally change what baseball journalism looks like for the season? Yes, it's going to change everything. As I think I told you, my, the number one thing I miss is being is no substitute for being at the ballpark, talking to the players, walking through the clubhouse, watching BP. The tiniest little things you see are great indicators of what's going on with this team. And if I don't get to talk to a player before or after the game, um, that's really going to change things. And I think that's where we're headed. I mean, I do games from the booth. I have for the last five years. And if I have to do a major league game from my house while watching it on TV, um, that's simply not going to be the same thing because you just can't get the same viewpoint on TV as you can when you're at the ballpark. You can't see the jump that the center fielder got on that ball because the camera isn't trained on the center fielder. Uh, it's going to be very difficult, but I think we all get better get used to a, at least the possibility that none of the broadcasters and none of the writers is going to be allowed to be in the ballpark. We're going to all have to do it from a, a different site. Yeah, it's it's going to be just such a strange situation, but I, I think I speak for everyone when I say as long as the players and their families and the staff can be healthy, we all are just dying for baseball right now. So we'll make do with whatever we can get as long as everybody can be safe. Um, yeah, mor the morale is really important, and that's why I'm hoping beyond hope that both sides, and this is why I am still have some encouraging de deal here, that they, everyone understands how much money is to be lost here if we don't play and how important it is for the country to get things going, of course, as long as everything is safe. Right. Now, uh, I mentioned when we started talking that I had a, uh, a, a very small bone to pick with you, sir, and that is for something you wrote <laughs> uh, many years ago in your second book, um, Is This a Great Game or What?, you, you mentioned in there, looking forward to one day being at David Wright's Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And uh, we all know that David Wright's career was, was befallen by injuries, and that's not going to happen. And uh, so uh, I have, it's funny, I read your book many years ago. There are many anecdotes I remember. I think about that one almost every time I see David Wright, because it just reminds me of how great David Wright was and how we never are going to get that resolution there. And so I'm teasing you when I say I have a gripe with you, but I do want to talk for a second about David Wright and just how great of a player David Wright is, because I think people sometimes forget the trajectory that he was on. And so what do you think David Wright's career could have been if he didn't get spinal stenosis and all the injuries that he got? 
Well, I think he would have been a Hall of Fame third baseman. As you know, there are fewer third basemen in the Hall of Fame than any other position. It's because it's a really hard play, and he played it really, really well. I think he's one of the four greatest Mets of all time. Uh, he holds so many Mets records. That, that stands for something. And the way he presented himself and the way he represented the game, I think, adds to that. I mean, I'm not sure I've met too many better ambassadors for how players are supposed to act and react than he did. And I knew like the first time I ever met him, well, this guy gets it. He understands it. When he told me he went home, I'll be close on this, his first off season, and he went back to his parents' house and he slept in, you know, the bunk beds where he grew up in. I said, this guy's, this guy's pretty well grounded. And I think it's just a shame that he got hurt as uh, when he did. And I think it will prevent him from being a Hall of Fame third baseman. Yeah, so I won't blame you for the jinx totally, but it's uh, you know it is it is hard. It's heartbreaking to watch your franchise player go down like that. But like you said, one of the classiest, nicest guys in all of baseball, and uh, obviously we're thrilled that he's still part of the Mets family, and we hope that he's uh, he is for a long time to come. Well, Tim, I'm, I'm gonna let you go now. But where can folks find you and your writing online if they're looking for some more baseball in their lives? Uh, well, I'm on ESPN.com every day. I've written a story, uh, my little take on this date in baseball history, starting March the 26th, and we're up to May the 15th. I've written now through June the 5th. There's some uh, video, a little 30-second minute to go with it. Um, and I wrote about Mike Piazza the other day. I've written about Dwight Gooden. More Mets are on the way. Um, and it's just my little way of trying to bring a smile to the face of, you know, our best baseball fans who don't have much to smile about these days. So it's on ESPN.com. And then since I'm the worst of all time in technology, they showed me how to send it out on Twitter because I could never figure out how to do that. So the story and the video goes out on Twitter also. And that's where you can see it, ESPN.com. And it runs on SportsCenter once in a while also. Well, Tim, thank you for your time. Continue to stay safe. And I hope for all of our sakes that we're all watching baseball sooner than later. Thank you for listening to Amazing Avenue in Conversation. You can find Tim Kirkjian's work at ESPN.com or on Twitter at Kirkjian underscore ESPN. That is K-U-R-K-J-I-A-N underscore ESPN. You can find Amazing Avenue all over the internet on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. Of course, at AmazingAvenue.com. You can find our entire series of podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I am on Twitter at Brian Inzanab. And until next time, let's go Mets. Mm-hmm.